Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, if you have your Bibles, look with me in 1 John chapter 5. We've titled tonight's message, A Potent Faith. I don't know how you thought about your dad, or maybe you had the absence of a father growing up, but I had my dad up until age eight. He was a towering figure of a man. He was six foot three, an an all-American uh, football player, won a lot of trophies in dra- javelin and discus and just about anything that you can imagine, some kind of sport, this guy was involved with it. Well, he was a baseball coach for a high school when um, the Lord called him, as we call it in the church I grew up in, he called him to preach. And my mom says she'll never forget the day because he left out of the middle of service, ran home, and she walked into the house later to find him crying. Here's this big blubbering guy in the house. And she said, what's the matter? I don't know. I think God's calling me to preach. (laughs) It was bad news for him because his dad was a pastor. And he swore he would never be a pastor. He was going to do something different in his life. Well, even though he spent many years in the ministry and I watched him pastor a church and people love him and share his heart for the Lord and preach, uh, I remember his power, his personal ability that he had. Uh, We had this thing that we did after every Sunday. I don't know about you guys, but Sunday morning services ended right on time. And the reason the pastor had to end right on time is because all the women in the church had pot roasts in the oven. You think I'm joking. I'm not. And no self-timers, so they had to get home before the food in the oven burned. So if the pastor began to go past 12 o'clock, there was going to be problems in the church afterwards. Well, I had two older brothers. Very rowdy, much older than me. And in high school, they thought that they were the strongest people in the world. They weren't. And so, as a part of their testosterone-filled experience in high school and moving on into the early 20s, they would always challenge my dad after Sunday service to trading of blows. I know it's hard to believe. If some of you are in shock right now because you're hearing this about a pastor's family, I'll just let you know it happens more often than we'd like to admit. Anyway, they would say, okay, my dad had a nickname, Hub. They called him that. And uh, he was a big guy. His name was Herbert. Well, they would take turns rearing back their arm as far as they could go and swinging it at him as hard as they could and hit him right in the arm. And he would just sort of nudge a little bit. They would kind of shake off their hand and he would grin. Then the next one would step up to the plate and aim as good as he could. And he'd look at him and say, you better take your best shot because it's the only one you're getting. So he would take off and, and hit him in the arm. He'd kind of shrug it off and he'd say, okay, my turn, but you have to hold still. No moving or you could get hurt. Well, the first one was amazing because he would release all the force that he could imagine with a big smile and knock my brother across the room. 
and just laugh and grin and look at the other one that has the wide eyes and say, you're next. And he'd do the same thing again and knock him across the room. I loved his strength. He had strength. And throughout my life, whenever I think of strength, I think of my dad. Because I saw it in action. It was amazing. Well, the Christian life requires a certain dynamic and power, strength, ability to conquer, ability to move forward. You know, the old adage or idea that we are a weak group of people who sort of cower over in the corner and wait for the world to run over the top of us is not the picture that I see in Scripture. In fact, I see Jesus Christ God-man coming to the earth and dying a very brutal and terrible death, but doing it all in submission to the will of the Father and out of a deep abiding love for humanity. There's real power, tempered control. But it's also a story about family. And we've gone over and over again uh, over this. But, you know, the way that John has written this, he he touches the subject, moves on a little further, and then comes around to that subject once again. And I think the themes that we see are love and family. And look with me at verse 21 of verse chapter 4, and then we'll move down in. It sort of sets the scene for the rest of, or for the beginning of chapter 5. This is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Verse 1 of 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten. Now there's a lot of begots and begottens there. Let me straighten that up for you. He basically says, if you love God, you love his family. If you love him, the guy who bore all of these people, you love his family too. I grew up next to a guy, right? Our our houses were right by each other. His name was Johnny Sepulveda. Now, I know in New Mexico you say Sepulveda or something like that. But in Texas, it's Johnny Sepulveda. Well, we were inseparable buddies up until the age of seven. And the problem with Johnny is that he didn't like to fight fair. I was a kid, a scrapper, believe it or not. Any chance that I got, I would hit you right in the nose and tell you all about it on the way down. It was sort of a bad trait. I'm not that way anymore, so don't be afraid to come up after service. But every time I would square off with Johnny, because sometimes friends square off, and I can't explain why, but we did. He would look at me and he'd say, you better not hit me. Because you know if you do, I'm going to go call my cousins. Oh, you ever experienced that? I'm going to call my cousins or I got brothers or sisters or someone. And it was always harder to, to really unload and hit the guy because I knew that he would do it. That if I did it later on, maybe the next day, maybe two or three days later, I would run into one of his family members. Hey, we heard what you did to Johnny the other day. And then I'm in trouble. There is... This unique relation in a family. That even though family members may not necessarily get along that well, we all recognize that we're in the family. And you don't mess with our family. 
You guys feel that way? Do you have that kind of family? That's just the way we are. It's a biblical principle in that John says, if you love God, you love His people also. You know, one of the fatal mistakes that you can make is walking up to a parent and say, you know what, I've always loved you, but I just can't stand your kids. Well, the parent's first response is, okay, good. Never talk to this person again and uh, never have anything to do with them. Because if you don't like my kids, you don't like me. And this is the point he's getting across, is that if you love the Creator and you pray to the Creator and you spend time with Him, there also has to be this other side of you that absolutely loves His family. And we've covered that quite well. Look with me at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. You've probably asked the question before, how do I know that I'm a Christian? Is it because I go to church? Is it because I give my money to missions or I pray at certain times a day? What is the real deciding factor? How do I know that I'm a Christian? The word that's used here, by this we know, is the word gnosko, and it implies an experiential knowledge that knows that it knows. It's not just intellectual. You know, there are some times when you do a lot of good things, and you're being very uh, obedient to the Lord, that when if someone asks you, are you a Christian, you would say, absolutely. But then there are those times when you've blown it, and you've crossed the line, and you know it, and you're not really... Sure, inside. And if someone asks you, are you a Christian? You might say, well, I think so. Well, he gives us a very, very, very definitive answer to how do I know I'm a Christian. He says in verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In order to really be a Christian, you need to be born of God. And the word there that is used for believe simply not only means that I have an intellectual assent that Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah. But you have a deep abiding reality in the way that you live your life in that you say, I believe that he's God and I believe it so much that I'm willing to let my life be changed by his spirit so that people can actually see that I've put my trust in him. Well, second of all, it says in verse 2 that we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Loving God and keeping His commandments and loving His family is not that easy to do. There are a lot of characters in this group. I know because I'm one of them. And I know that for some folks, I've made it a little bit hard to love the family of God. But the fact is that if you find in yourself that you pray for the body of Christ... You give brothers and sisters grace. You gladly identify yourself with them at work and at play and around the world. Wherever you go, you find that you, in fact, are a believer. Now, it's not enough to just say, well, I don't mind Christians. 
The real statement is that I absolutely love them as my family. And just like Johnny Sepulveda, you have this sense about you that if you come at me or if you come at one of my family members, you come at all of us because we see ourselves together. Now, this is kind of hard for us in American society because we praise the individual, don't we? It's the guy on top or it's the one who is out front who's doing something amazing. But in reality, we go together. You cannot separate us one from another. And that's the way the Lord sees us. Now, notice the second part of this verse. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The word that is used there for keep is a Greek word which is tereo. And it means to guard or to watch over carefully. Sort of like if you're in a big family and you have a meal. You guys, How many of you come from big families? Well... I always grew up with older brothers and sisters and other people around who would gladly eat my plate of food if I was so slow in finishing. And the phrase goes something like this. Are you going to finish that? Yes, of course I'm going to finish that. Now, myself as the dad, I'm sort of the um, garbage pail or the garbage collector or um, garbage disposal. There you go. For the family. I find myself when any of the kids are sort of moving slow on the plates, I'm like, are you going to eat that? Because I'll gladly take care of that for you right there. But then they begin to guard it. No, dad, it's fine. I don't No, I, dad, you've eaten enough. Just go away from the table. (laughs) Out of the mouth of babes. Okay. To guard over and watch carefully as it is a prized possession. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. Here is a commandment, really, that sums up all of the laws and the commandments of God. There was a Pharisee that came to Jesus and and, uh, wanted to ask him a question. And look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had silence, speaking of Jesus, the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So there it is. What are the great commandments? What exactly are we supposed to obey? And he sums it up with the word love. Love God, your creator, to whom honor is due. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love them in such a way as you would love your own self and care for them as you would care for yourself. That's it. But then he goes a little further and gives it more definition concerning the disciples. Look with me at John chapter 15. Just flip over to the right. A few books. Let's look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Just as I have 
kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now, at first glance, you think, wow, Jesus, that's kind of conditional loving, isn't it? If if you guys do what I say, you can be my friends. That's not what he's saying. Look back at verse 10. Here's the key. Here's the big aha. If you keep my commandments, you will abide or live or dwell in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and live and dwell in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. He's saying, keep my commandments. I've kept my father's. I abide in it and I do it. But here's the commandment. And if you do this commandment, you'll have my joy in your life and you'll have joy. And here it is. Love one another. Truly, you're my friend if you love one another. You get it? Here's the joy. If you love one another, you're my friends if you keep my commandments. My commandment is that you love one another. Just as my Father has loved me and I've loved you, my Father loves you, and it's love all the way around the room. And if you do this, your joy will be full. There is no greater joy than in loving. I have had no greater experiences in my life than in being in love. With my wife, my kids, or the dear friends that God has brought along. And notice what he says back in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. You know, when you think of the Ten Commandments and you think, do good, do good, don't do this, do that, do this, don't do that, you kind of get frustrated and you think, man, I blow it a lot. But he says, he sums it all up, love God and love your neighbor. And here's my commandment to you, love each other. And if you do, oh, what great joy. Loving each other should be easy as pie. Loving your brothers and sisters should be something that fills us with joy from the top to our bottom. Every family has commandments. I don't know if you have ever thought about this, but sometime go through this week and think of, write down all the unspoken rules in your house. Maybe some of you do have rules. Some of the unspoken rules in my house are loyalty. You guys like that in a family? We're family. We got to be loyal to one another. Another one is to be kind or caring or cooperative or considerate. It's all based on relationships. And here's a new revolution or maybe a new way of thinking about your relationship with God. That if it's really based on a relationship, abiding, living, dwelling, spending time with God. And his desire is that his joy may be in us and that our joy may be full, complete, overflowing. Then maybe we should think of all the things that he has taught us. 
as something that is an easy, accessible way to express our love for Him. Being obedient. I know that I talk about my wife too much and my kids, but it's all about family here. So please bear with me one more time. There will be many more to come, I assure you. But I believe this is at the very heart of our relationship with God. Sometimes the family puts demands on me. Your family ever put demands on you, gentlemen? Not that you would ever admit, but let's say you can just admit it here. Just give me a little head nod like, yeah, sure. And, and ladies, you know, sometimes your family puts demands upon you. Sometimes they ask you hard things. And they, they ask you to do things that maybe naturally you wouldn't do. But the more that you love them and the more that your relationship is in depth and you're intertwined with each other, it seems to be so much easier. It seems to be so much easier. I find myself saying, oh, yes, honey, I'd be glad to do that. Honey, can you stop by the store on the way home? Oh, well, sure. I, I'd be I'd love to, honey. Oh, thank you, sweetie. Dad. Can you climb up on the roof and get that airplane? Sure. I'd be glad to. And there is this interaction that takes place. Well, think of the commandments of Jesus and His laws just like that. Out of love, out of joy of knowing each other, having a real relationship, it's easy for us to love one another. It's easy for us to obey His commands because there is real relationship. So what does this require of us? It requires of us to get involved with other people. It requires of us a sense of self-sacrifice in that we are willing to give of our time, our inner being, our life, and begin to divulge ourselves to people around us in the body of Christ so that they begin to know us. They begin to pray for us. We begin to pray for them. And a real dynamic develops that the world stands in amazement. You know, one of the early historians writing about the Christian church, they said, oh, how they love one another. It was the real mark. And as we've mentioned before in our study in 1 John, real love is marked by activity. It's visible. You can see it. You can touch it. It's tangible. All right. Look with me at verse 4. He shifts here from keeping his commandments and commandments of love to speaking about a very potent power that we mentioned earlier. He says, for whatever is born of God, there's that phrase again, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who practices, who who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? The word that is used here for overcome is nikao. And it means to conquer or to overpower or with strength take something over and dominate. 
It is a very strong word. It means to rule, to exert power and position over. This is what he says. Whatever is born of God overcomes or overpowers or has victory over the world. Again, I mentioned what we said in the beginning. Oftentimes we look at the church as a huddled mass in the corner waiting for the enemy to come in and to hurt us. And we're always fighting some type of foe. But whoever is born of the Spirit of God, whoever has this new life, this Spirit pulsating, live and vibrant in them, overcomes or overpowers the world. This phrase implies for us that there is a war going on. You and I are engaged in a war. I know that over the years, those of us who have had radio and television, now internet, stay glued to the information to find out what is going on in the war that is, that's taking place in the world right now. But even before, everyone wants to know exactly what's happening. Well, right now, my friends, you and I are engaged in a spiritual war and a spiritual battleground. And I'm not saying just this room right here, but our lives separately and collectively, we have an enemy. Keep your finger here and look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn back to your left, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll look at verse 3. Paul, speaking here, says, For though we walk in the flesh, the word here for walk is live or have our being, our manner, our lifestyle, this life that we live. Though we walk in the flesh, this body, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to obedience of Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought of this before, but I don't think I'd ever want to be in a cage with a gorilla. You ever go to the zoo and go up to the monkey cage and you've got the monkeys running around, they're slinging stuff and they're about half gross. But then you go to the gorillas and you're like, wow, these guys are strong. They could just bounce across the cage. And imagine yourself being put in that cage with just your normal street clothes and the two of you are supposed to fight over a banana. Who do you think would win? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Match flesh to flesh, we lose every time. The world that is spoken of here is the world system that stays in constant rebellion against God. The flesh that is spoken of here is that portion of humanity, even in our own life, that stays in constant rebellion against God. And in the flesh, if we tried a war, it would be like stepping in to a cage with a gorilla and being thrown from end to end. However, if you have the right weaponry, you can conquer. Here's the winning scenario. Imagine being just outside the bars with a tranquilizer gun. You have a weapon that is very potent to overpower your enemy. Now, 
Look with me over at Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Paul continues this metaphor here of the spiritual life as a war by making these statements about our armor and our weapons. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. There he is. There's our enemy. Not only is our enemy the flesh, this life, but we have a real enemy who is out to destroy our faith. Now, I know for some of you, you may have in your mind, the devil has a guy with a pitchfork and sort of running around in a red suit who's always kind of poking at people and there's always flames around him. That's not really the picture that we see in scriptures. We've discussed him before. But this is what he is. He's a fallen angel who has stayed, just like the flesh, just like the world system, in constant rebellion against God. He doesn't love God. He is not in right relationship with Him. And has even desired, as himself, to be as the highest angel, to be above God himself, to be in competition with Him. He is an enemy to us. He is real in that we see His effects in this world. He is real in that we see His effects in this world. This world system that we are told not to love creates corruption, death, fighting, wars, sensuality, and so much destruction That it's obvious for anyone who's paying attention that there is another force at play. But he works hand in hand, not only with his own evil desires, but he works hand in hand with our flesh. This portion of us that is a little bit sneaky and has desires that are not necessarily good. Uh, Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have had desires that have not necessarily been good for you? Okay, a nod, just a little... Slight look from side to side. Oh, and a hand raise. All right, good. It's true. And the devil comes and he exacerbates and inflames those desires in a way and capitalizes on them so that to produce the strongest and the worst destruction possible. Why would he do so? Because we are the objects of God's love. We stand in defiance of his rebellion. When he would say to Job, oh, or say about Job to God, does Job serve you for nothing? Job serves you because you bless him, because you've given him a nice place to live and a nice family. Of course. But if you take that away from you, he'll curse you to your face. Well, God takes it away. And what happens? Job loves God. We stand in defiance every day that is something bad happens to us and we resist the world and we constantly repent of our sins and we're constantly in humility, leaning upon God, holding on to him and and, and confessing our sins. We stand in defiance against our enemy. We stand in defiance against the devil and his hatred of God. We stand in defiance against our flesh, which is supposed to overwhelm us, but yet it doesn't because we've been born of the spirit of God and we triumph because there is a power. It is a 
potent, real, definite faith that is very, very tangible. I want to say something to you that I I want to sink deep into your heart. No matter what the world tells you about yourself, no matter what your past tells you about yourself, no matter what your friends say about you that may be negative, or those thoughts that you have, or those feelings that you struggle with, greater is He who is in you. Because you're born of the Spirit of God, God has given you ability to overthrow the enemy that comes against you. God has given you that ability. And you need to know that as you walk down the street every day. You don't need to live a life that is defeated by sin. Oh, I just struggle so much. Why? Give it to God. Walk away from it. It, has, it doesn't have a hold on you. You say, well, yes, it does. Only for a while. Only for a while. Because God has promised this ability to conquer our enemy. That's just his promise to us. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Flick back to the left. There's two noticeable characteristics and distinction between the work of God and the flesh. And so if you want to know which one is in operation, this is the perfect chapter. Verse 17, we read these words. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish. But if you are led by the spirit... You're not under the law. Now here are the works of the flesh. They're evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and heresies. We're not finished. (laughs) Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the works of the flesh. Notice there are not fruits, they are works. They bear no fruits, they are diseased. If you find yourself consistently involved in one of these activities, you have to be reminded of the fact that this is a work of your flesh. This is a work of the enemy in your life. And every one of these activities will bring destruction in your life. This type of behavior and action will absolutely destroy you. But here's the flip side. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. Real life. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. There's no law against those fruits. 
There's no law in the, against any of that. And that is the fruit that is actually over, overcoming every evil act in the world. Love. The love of God conquers all things. Gentleness, patience, self-control. You see, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. If it was just a matter of you and I running in and being stronger than the next guy and saying, I love you and I'm going to take you all over with love and I'm going to overpower you and I'm going to get a bigger gun and I'm going to put love on the front of it and I'll make sure I hit you right between the eyes. No. It's absolutely contrary to your natural fleshly desires. I don't know about you, but... All the times that I've ever been hit in the nose, all I could ever think of was aim directly for the head. My natural response is to respond with anger, force, and power. But what he's revealing here in 1 John chapter 5 is that this faith, this belief that overcomes the world, comes out of this love and fruit of the Spirit. How do you overcome the the works of darkness? By getting mad at them and shouting at them? No. By leaning closer to God. How do you overcome those people at work who are mad at you, who are persecuting you, or who are doing sneaky things in the office to maybe uh, to get you in a bad position with the boss? Maybe they're trying to destroy you. Your response is not to become more sneaky and now begin to campaign against them. Your response is to humbly submit yourself to the Lord and overcome wickedness with the internal power and fruit of the Spirit that is available to you and me. Love, self-control, peace, goodness, kindness. These are the weapons of our warfare. Now we're also told... In Ephesians chapter 6, that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. God has given us an offensive weapon. We don't have time to go through all of the defensive weapons or, or armor that He's given us in Ephesians. You can read that tonight if you'd like. But He's given us His word. And your ability to use His word as a sword, is in direct relation to the time that you spend in the Bible. To the time that you spend with His Spirit and the time you spend in the Bible. It's the difference between a butcher and a surgeon. It's the difference. And the more you spend time, I spend time with God's Word. As God places us in situations where we are at war, the the enemy is against us, He is able to use the words of this book, the the truth of this Bible, and put it in your hand, in your mouth, in your life, in your head, in your arms, and use you as a very mighty force against darkness. Do you ever think of that about yourself? Being used as someone that God, God has destined to be a warrior in the faith? There's so much analogy used of warfare, we can't get away from it. 
I don't like the idea of seeing us as hapless victims on the side of the road of life. Just waiting for God to come along and help us because we've just been trampled so much as Christians. That's not the vision I get. It's not what I see in Scripture. What we actually see is God's overcoming power in us. Back to 1 John chapter 5. Who is he, verse 5, who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you believe, that is, you've placed your trust in, and you've given all of your full thought and expression of hope in Jesus Christ, you positionally have overcome the world. The question is, are you actually living that lifestyle? I had the privilege this last six, seven years of knowing an amazing believer. Her name was Jill Brady. On Tuesday, we had her funeral right here. And I tell you, all of the memories I can think of about her life just came flooding back as family and friends and co-workers and doctors came in to pay their respects to Jill. I met her about seven years ago in a hospital room. I made a trip, as we do pastors, we go to the hospital and visit folks, and I'd never met her. And she was sort of sitting in a quiet room, with a, a muted light, and sort of setting up in bed. And I came in, and I said, may I come in? She said, sure, come on in. And she had told me about her struggles with cancer. Well, she seemed to be a very amazing person. Her faith in the Lord was very strong. But she didn't know what God would do with this disease. Well, we prayed. We trusted in the Lord. And I got to know she and her family well. And we had many trips to the hospital. And many times we would go to um, a procedure. We would pray together. We would trust in the Lord. We would ask for healing. We spent many a night at their home, at she and Ed's house, praying and seeking the Lord. But about three weeks ago, she went into the hospital and her pain was severe. In just a few days, the doctor said it was over. That she only had a short time to live. She never left the hospital. In those three weeks, we spent many hours going back and forth from home to the hospital. And I watched her begin to fade. But her faith in the Lord was strong. And the night that she died... I got a phone call about 12.30, and we tried to make it down to the hospital. We got there just after she had gone on to be with the Lord. I peered into a hospital room with a group of people surrounding her body. It was her family. Everyone was there. And the past three weeks, she had just severe pain had begun to take a toll on her face. She could tell she was agony and you know how the muscles begin to clench. As I peered into the room, I saw family around the bed, and the, but I, I saw her face and it was about as peaceful as it gets. And there was a sense in that room of sadness 
and yet relief and joy. I can't. It was tangible. All of the family members there that were believers knew where she had gone. There was a sense of victory in this. And I can't explain it, but it it was there. And even the days that followed, the family gave ample testimony to that fact. This world is fraught with trouble and pain and sorrow. But the faith and the belief that is in the life of the believer is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. You cannot put it down. Death cannot put it down. No war, no weapon that's fashioned against us will ever control the spirit of a believer because it is God's spirit who is in us. And even though we may face persecution, even though our body may be racked with pain and we may be in sorrow, there is this joy that overpowers it all because God has put His Spirit within us. Who's the perfect example? Jesus Christ. What a way for a a God or a king to die on a cross. Oh, there's the secret. You cannot put him down and you cannot put his people down. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.